This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, August 6, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. School districts in Seattle and Louisville, Kentucky are still reeling from a Supreme Court decision striking down student assignment plans based on race. How other districts react to the ruling has yet to be determined. Andrew Colson is the director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. The ruling, he says, may be useful to school choice advocates, but it's not clear that greater school choice is an inevitable outcome. School districts will have to take some time to digest this ruling. Will many district student assignment plans be affected? Well, it seems likely that uh, on the order of 100 programs nationwide uh, will be affected immediately by this ruling. Uh, And it will also cause uh, districts that were thinking about uh, implementing some kind of program like this uh, to rethink what they're doing. Now, instead of switching to a system in which parents have greater choice of the schools where their children might attend, won't some districts simply supplant their current race-based policies with those based on income? Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, there are two alternatives that a lot of districts are thinking about, um, basically using something as a proxy for race, as a stand-in for race, that will give them the integration um, targets that they're looking for without actually explicitly taking race into consideration. Now, one of those is income, because that's known to be correlated with race in the United States. And another is place of residence. So if um, there are particular neighborhoods in a district that tend to be uh, fairly homogeneous racially, they can pull students from particular neighborhoods without uh, necessarily running afoul of the Constitution. Now, In Louisville, where I'm from, tens of thousands of students in that district are in what the feds determined to be failing schools with low, very low proficiency rates for reading and mathematics. Uh, That was especially true of schools that had a great number of minority students in them. It's hard for me to see exactly how that program promoted quality education. Why wasn't that a factor in the in the case? Well, it's actually very interesting. In, in looking through the ruling and the discussion of the issues involved, it really seems that the uh, districts in Louisville and Seattle made the case that they were simply trying to achieve integration for its own sake. And uh, there was nothing in the record to say that these programs necessarily had a positive impact on student achievement. And so um, what the court said eventually was that you really can't jump to this uh, use of race as a tool for uh, ensuring integration uh, or, for that matter, positive academic outcomes without first trying to achieve these outcomes uh, in a racially neutral way. Now, many states have what are known as Blaine Amendments, which prevent state funds from going to uh, many private or religious schools. Will, will that be a factor? Well, it is with voucher programs because uh, voucher programs essentially um, constitute the government taking the money that would normally be spent on a child's public school education and giving it to the parents so that they can choose a public or private school um, that suits their, their children. Uh, the problem, of course, is that many states, most states, in fact, have uh, one of two clauses in their constitution, either a compelled support clause or a Blaine Amendment, uh, both of which restrict the use of state funds uh, on education at religious schools. But there are, in fact, other school choice policies, and I have long argued better school choice policies that can achieve universal school choice, universal access to both public and private schools without spending a dime of government money along the way. And the way that you do this is through non-refundable education tax credits. 
for people who have uh, a balance of taxes that they owe uh, already on their uh, local property taxes, state property taxes, uh, income taxes, and even sales taxes, you can simply cut the taxes on parents with school-aged children. So instead of owing, say, two or three or four or five thousand dollars in total state and local tax liability, uh, a family could keep some or all of that money and simply spend it on the kind of education they think is best for their children. So this gives you the ideal scenario uh, from an economic standpoint of people spending their own money on their own children, uh, and thus giving them a great incentive to spend that money wisely. Uh, of course, this kind of program, this personal use tax credit program, doesn't help very low-income families because they're not going to have a tax liability uh, sufficient to uh, defray the cost of their children's education. And so for lower-income families, there are what's called scholarship donation tax credit programs. And under these programs, which already exist in a couple of states like Arizona and Pennsylvania, uh, scholar, either uh, parents or uh, taxpayers or businesses can donate money to private scholarship funds. And those funds, in turn, distribute the money as financial assistance to low-income families for paying tuition. So the low-income family uh, simply uh, contacts a local scholarship organization in their area and uh, tells them uh, where they'd like to send their children to school, and the scholarship organization provides the funds thanks to donations that are tax credited from uh, individuals and businesses. That's Andrew Colson, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. For more on school choice and other issues, visit our website, cato.org.